On today's podcast, we talked to novelist Daniel Pena about how to be a cheery human despite being in the business of immersing oneself in the really violent reality of the drug war at the border. Tune in to hear about his next project. Turns out it's way more upbeat. And Jessica learns about the wonder that is Texas's best grocery store chain, H-E-B. Oh, yeah. That'd be, that'd be crazy if that was the only season. I should have just played it. Like, oh my god, that's the guy! No. <laughs> yeah. Check out the ambient noise as much as possible. Oh, that's cool. You can do through your phone. So I don't have to edit too much. Did you say ambient? Ambient. Yes, <laughs> ambient. Yes. The ambient noise. Because if I have it on, it will cause everyone to be a racist. <laughs> <laughs> my middle kid was like... Hey mom, is that uh, is that is that your podcast? And I was like, yeah, this is, we just started the second season, so I was just listening to this because Fu was making me do a bunch of work, and you know, he's a slave driver. I like that Fu is And I was like, she's like, is this it? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of exciting. We're like, you know, on a roll. And she she was like, so uh, how much how much do you get paid for that? Oh my god. That's like so Mina. And I was like, well, Mina, like, nothing yet. And she just goes, sad. (laughs) So my seven-year-old, I didn't know this, but my seven-year-old is composing Donald Trump's tweets, I think. She's like, ghostwriter, sad. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. I'm Jessica Cole. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers, for writers. The experience of reading Daniel Pena's novel, Bang, is, as the title announces, jarring and painful in its most basic realizations. Due to manufactured divisions, such as national borders designed to separate human beings from each other, a desperate, callous way of life springs up akin to medieval Europe with its openly deadly feuds and factions and its casual disregard for life. Everything in this novel underscores the ridiculous and cruel riddle. Whether one is on one side of a line or another, born American or Mexican, white or brown, fatherless or not, breathing in noxious pesticide fumes or living far from them, having access to medication and the basics for survival or having your father's village, one of seven San Miguels become emptied of him and reformed as a side of a lottery more terrifying than Shirley Jackson's. There's humor amidst the macabre. Ariselli pays a woman at an internet cafe who helps her get online and send a Facebook friend request to her sons, but neither of them have any access to technology on their journeys through this awful absurdity. Pena's sentences contain moments of beauty. The sun or moon often blot out what is better left concealed. The word for sky, heaven, cielo, in Aricelli's name seems very purposeful. Both birds and dogs are recurring themes, offering danger as often as hope or companionship. His writing is descriptive of scenes and injuries this reader would rather not see so vividly, but this bleak world exists, and to change it, I believe Pena is insisting with Bang, one must first look it in the eye. Daniel Pena, thank you for being on the show. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate this. Yeah. Uh, we're excited to have you. Yeah, I'm it's excited been... to be here. This is great. I'm a huge fan of the press. I'm a huge fan of just the podcast. Thanks. Thanks a bunch. Do you, do you mind opening up with an excerpt? Sure. I could do that. I really love the June passage. I think that's going to be 
June is one of my favorite characters Mine because too. she's like, um, I used to have a whole June thread in the book that got cut out. But June is like this very punk rock. So they, they have these groups called Gombos that are like punk rock sort of street culture kids uh-huh. who just run like entire neighborhoods. Yeah. And it's very much like June is sort of part of that. But it's like, it's interesting. Like, you know, like she's wearing Sex Pistols t-shirts. <laughs> but uh, June, this is, a, this is a section on June. When the bloody girl arrives, she brings the black dog in her arms. The dog brings the flies that ride the dog's stench. Zizaz go their wings that jolt Uli from sleep before the girl can even notice he's in her bed. From the corner of her eye, she sees movement. She lowers the bloody dog to the floor, pulls a pistol from the small of her back and points it at Uli's head. Don't move. Not even a breath, she says, backing out into the hallway. Uli does exactly as she says. She watches his hands. They're planted flat on the mattress. Her eyes are adjusting. In the hallway, she flips the light switch so the hall shines behind her. She can see him clear as day, but he can only see her silhouette. She learned that squatter's trick from her old crew when all slept with their backs to the east side of every wall. Always keep your back to the sun. The light would buy you a second or two, enough time to slip out and run. She thinks about running. Every squatter's number comes up. Every squatter moves on, but she looks at her dog bleeding on the ground, barely able to move. That wet look in his eye that says, don't leave me. Get down on the floor. Hands where I can see them, she says. Uli does as she says, sliding from the bed to the floor. His scars shine in the light. The bloody girl sees how gingerly he moves. How painfully slow each joint bends and flexes to get him down to where he needs to be. He lays there prostrate on the ground pathetic. Every movement is labored. Every breath is too deep. She keeps the gun on him. She knows he's not a threat, although he's got to be the one who cut her dog loose. He's already done some damage, and that makes him dangerous. Where do I know you from? She asks him, only the profile of his face visible now that his eyes are on the ground. Don't be shy, friend. Answer me. This is my house, says Uli. First time I've seen you in it, says a bloody girl. My father's house. He lived here past tense, lived. I don't see him anymore. These are my things, says the bloody girl, pointing around the room with her pistol. My bed, my sheets, my dog, which, by the way, you cut loose. I thought he might have been my father's. Well, you thought wrong. And now you owe me. You talk funny. Where are you from, says the bloody girl, the pistol still aimed at his head. Texas. Explains your father's bad taste and decor. Should have gotten rid of that George straight a long time ago, she says, lowering the gun. A long silence between them. You can go on and get up, she says. But Uli just lays right there. A moment or two passes. Neither of them knows what the other is going to do. Go on, get up. I'm not going to shoot you. I know where I've seen you, she says. That picture up in the living room, family picture. You're older now. Oh, shit. Which one are you, Uli or Cuauhtémoc? Uli. I'm June, she says. Why do you move so slow? What's wrong with your body? What's happened to the dog, says Uli. Butcher got him, she says. She looks at Uli's face, his eyebrow working like he's trying to shake himself from a dream. She explains, Butcher takes any animal. He doesn't discriminate. You see any cows around here, pigs, chickens? Well, how many dogs do you see? I see the floor, says Uli. Well, how many do you hear then, huh? A lot. A hell of a lot, says June. We're in the desert. You let that dog go and he's meat the next day. You cut loose all good things in this world, understand? 
I've got good reason to shoot you dead tonight, but I won't. You know why? Because I'm compassionate and because you're a cripple. And I can tell you're injured by the way you're lying there. Can't even wipe your own ass. I can wipe my own ass as really <laughs> visibly agitated, wide awake now. I'd say prove it, but looks like getting up off that floor would make it a good day for you. How long are you going to stay, asked Uli. This is my home too, squatter laws. I don't know what you're talking about. You just need to know I'm staying here. The dog couldn't make the trip anyway. I caught the butcher right as he made his first slice. Had to sew him up on the table right there. You believe that? Didn't catch the artery, thank God, but fucking bastard made me pay for the meat. You believe that? I'll pay you back, says Uli. I have some money. If you don't shoot me, I can pay you what she's worth. He is worth more than you can afford, friend. He's a prize fighter. I thought he was a girl. What's his name? Atomico, says June. His equipment is small, but it's there. <laughs> Atomico. He's radioactive, she says, with a straight face. Yeah. She's such a badass. She's a badass, yeah. I love June. I do too. I do too. I feel like in those, in uh, so often in these stories, there's like this intense moment um, that you write and then you add these moments of reprieve, you know, humor or a uh, list with, you know, Whataburger and the things yeah. you're going to pick up from H-E-B or when you... There's a lot of Whataburger. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that intentional? I mean, is that on, uh, on your part to, to give us readers a break or... Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I was constantly thinking about this. Like Jenny, Jenny Zhang said this one thing one time that really resonated with me, which she says, when you take humanity out of a character or you take, rather, if you take humor out of a character... Um, you take their humanity away. Mm -hmm. I always thought about that, like these tiny little, they're very small moments, but these things that, um, they can be very funny, like Whataburger, or like um, June being like so serious about this dog that's radioactive. She's like, I swear to you. (laughs) And there's a whole backstory about like, you know, cobalt 15 pellets that the dog was found with and all kinds of stuff. But, you know, like, I think, I think it's, it's, it's one of these things you can't, if you, if you make it, or if you constantly steep them within sort of the fabric of sad or tragic or trauma, it can become a generic kind of trauma. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so by including some of that humor, you're, you're weaving a fabric that's a little bit more specific. And We know that they're not caricatures. These are based people. on real people or not yeah. necessarily yeah. real people that you know, but that, yeah, that they're real and this, yeah. this is yeah. happening. Yeah, like Charles Dickens used to say, um, when he would write, it would be like streaky bacon, meaning there would always be sort of the juxtaposition of funny and sad within the same moment. Mm-hmm. And I always love that idea that's like, something can be really tragic, but really funny too, right? Um, and I always tell my students this too, that like, if you, if, you, if you look anywhere, like funny stuff is happening all the time. Like outside of this window, that some, some, something really funny is happening. But that's important to sort of bring it into. It's also just sort of like humor, you know, sort of based in trauma is what separates propaganda from art, I think. Mm-hmm. It's easy. It's really easy to become, uh, to write a, uh, this kind of story and for it to become propaganda and say, oh, it's this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, right. And cynicism, too. I mean, it's exactly. so cynical and bleak and offer not even one redemptive or hopeful, you know. Yeah. Because everyone, yeah, because everyone has got to have hope, you know. Right. Absolutely. We need it more than ever. Yeah. So I'm, I'm so curious if, if I'm just, uh, yeah, if I've taken too many English classes or if there is an intentional Odyssey vibe to the, the book. I mean, is Yuli short for Elisa? It is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, that's a really great question. It's so, so both of the brothers names, really all of the characters names, um, have some sort of deeper 
meaning, if you will. But like Ulysses, I kept thinking about sort of Ulysses, the sort of, you know, the Latin name for Odysseus and this, mm-hmm. this sort of, you know, king of Ithaca who is after the Battle of Troy is coming home, right? And it's, it's this idea of homecoming. And when you're Mexican-American, especially when you grow up in the sort of the fabric of the borderlands, what is homecoming really? You know, both sides of the border are, you know, they, they say there are many Mexicos, but there are also many Texases, there's many Americas. And so when his father's deported, you know, if your family's your home, your family's split up, you know, this homecoming is very much kind of like an odyssey. He's also based on, and this was, uh, you know, I, I actually changed in the very last draft of this book, like right when it was going to print. I changed the name. The, the guy used to be something else. But I, the, Ulysses, originally, in the very first drafts, I actually I, I borrowed it just on a lark from my roommate at the time in Mexico City, whose name was Ulysses. Uh-huh. And I was like, I love the name, and I love um, I love that sort of, uh, just the cadence of it, and then everyone called him Uli, and I was like, oh, that's a great sort of short, really simple name. And then when I got to the end, I was like, wow, that's totally that character's name. What do you think of sort of like this sort of 10 years being lost? Um, constantly fighting and having to be crafty. No, I mean, I, I did date someone named Ulysses from Mexico, and his he was named because um, he was third. Like, so his older brother is Eduardo, and his older oh. sister is Maria Elena. And then, you know, so he has this sort of told you this, and he was like, yeah, my mom was there, so there was a lot of oversharing. Oh, yeah. That'd be, that'd be crazy if that was the only scene. I should have just played him, like, oh my god, that's the guy! No. Yeah. Is, yeah. That was my roommate! That is... No. No, my, my roommate is Ulysses Pina, who's a... Who's a it, it was, when we were doing a Fulbright in Mexico City, they put us on this bus, because we had to go do this, like, basically this indoctrination camp into the in the U.S. Embassy, and we sit, and I'm Pena, and he's Pina, so we just sat next to each other, and we uh, oh, cool. we just formed a really quick friendship. But he's a, he's actually a really he's a great historian at Colorado College. He's a uh, he's cool. Check him out. Oh, nice. And maybe this is a follow up question to the whole like trauma humor thing. But we experienced you as a really cheery guy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really Especially jacket. with that photo that you sent. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Tie, got this you know, great in the wind. headshot, you know, and um, and then you know, we happened to meet you at at Ripe Fest, and it was uh. like really great to talk to you and um, oh, you're yeah, generous yeah. enough to come on the show and then you know reading your novel it's like <laughs> you know it's not so, that where did you know? this like, come from yeah, yeah this guy's so dark yeah. No, yeah so what what's it like to be around you when you're in the midst of writing oh my god these yeah. stories that are I was... hard and they have they have a really yeah a really hard edge for me the novel came out of this like really singular question which is like where does dignity come from and if dignity is stripped of you systematically do you have the right to go and find that dignity and mm. for me that was always sort of like the source of light within within the book and I was always thinking about like how these characters it was important for me to be to look these stories in the eye and they're uh, for what it's worth one of the things I'm really proud of with this book is that most of these stories are based on real events. So it's not necessarily that they're real or that it was happened to one person, but they came out of the news or anecdotes or research or interviews that I did. And so one of the sort of, a lot of the pushback I got on early, especially when I was sort of like selling the book was that um, they were like, this can't be, this can't be, uh, you know, so dark, you know, it's like so intense. But I was telling them, I was like, this is a, these are, these are real things that happen to real people. And I feel like the context of that sort of human or the humanity rather in the context of that 
darkness um, for me was really powerful and it's sort of a an interesting mode and shade to write in as a writer and just sort of and I was like wow that's uh, that's intense and uh, it was mimicking a lot of or I was trying to mimic a lot of sort of like a lot of the various shades that other writers who had done similar work before me had you know Bolaño being the most extreme you know Roberto Bolaño who does mm -hmm. has that passage in 2666 who's going really hard into the, the feminist eyes of Juarez and I just remember being like wow that's that's one extreme and then you have the other sort of I don't want to call it like a feel-good extreme, but you have sort of a lighter touch in something like, you know, Dave Eggers, What is the What? And I was like, uh -huh. there's got to be something. I knew I didn't want to go that direction, although it's interesting to me. And I didn't want to go the other extreme to where you're just hitting over the head and there's sort of a, there's a message that Bolaño is getting out about capitalism, about sort of like the waste of capitalism, the way it affects bodies. But I wanted to get sort of those certain elements of those tropes while keeping it within sort of a narrative. And so... For me, it was important to maintain that darkness, but it's also like, as a as a as a person, I'm not that dark. And so, yeah. <laughs> but I, I joke with my wife that it took like eight years off my life, you know, because I was like, oh my, because it, it was I was. I mean, there were probably times in there where I probably was, I should have been diagnosed clinically depressed or something. Oh, yeah, where it was like like year five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, you have like year three, like three more years to go. I didn't know that at the time, but I was like, oh god, this is so dark. But I, I promised my wife, actually, I was like, I'm not going to write, I don't think, another drug war novel. Like, it's so, it's the novel that I felt like was most um, pressing to me is the one I had to write. But I was just, I'm just so, I was, it, it was exhausting. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Because yeah. that's not my MO. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was wondering if you started any of it at Cornell. I did. I did. Yeah. So I was writing a lot of sort of migrant narratives and things like, I was really interested at that time about like the colonias in, in South Texas, these sort of these housing situations, which they give to a lot of undocumented people that are without water, without uh, basic utilities, basically. And they, and sort of like the way in which the Grove economy worked. And that made it into sort of part of the book. And then the drug war stuff came like really like my last semester slash when I was teaching at Cornell as a lecturer where the novel really evolved. And I was like, oh, this is a drug war novel. And I had elements of the drug war in earlier drafts of short stories I were writing or like, you know, the first draft of Bang. But I knew that I wanted to go like sort of in that route. And then it, weirdly enough, it became like not a drug war novel as much as it is about sort of these characters in the context of the drug war. It's about sort of systems and the way that like mm -hmm. the way the drug war and immigration and immigration law are like so symbiotic and they feed each other. And um, oh. it's uh, they're inextricably interlinked. Thinking about immigration south of the border, one has to naturally think about that side of it also. It just can't be a happy story of people going into the U.S. Yeah. Blah, 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 you know. Learn yeah. the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. No, they're always in the shadows. Yeah, that's true. Like Araceli is really bent out of shape about sort of living in the shadows. And so when the sheriff comes and knocks on the door, she's right. like, these basic things that you take for granted about sort of being like sort of living in the American fabric, you realize like, wow, it's a completely separate um, experience. Right, yeah. even yeah. though he wasn't actually was a threat, a... he was just, like, he knows she's there and he doesn't even, right? Like, he's actually pretty neutral yeah. and yet, I can, you know, he could change at any time. He's a right? terrifying it's force. Great. Yeah, he's terrifying, yeah. Yeah. I was at a coffee shop uh, rereading some sections the other day and uh, this guy came up to me and was like, uh, is that that is that that novel about the the prop plane that goes down? Whoa, that's cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool, and I was yeah. like, I, I don't know if that's how to describe the novel. But I'm like, 
Yeah. There's a lot of ways to describe the novel. And it took me a second, like, oh, yeah, that did happen. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Someone but, recognized it in the wild. Yeah, oh, yeah, cool. it was great. It, but then I found myself like, I, I, the conversation went on too long. I was like, did this happen? And I start like oh. trying to like, yeah. the book. I'm like, go, 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 go get it. <laughs> Hand it out, you know? And <laughs> I you appreciate said, that. It's really interesting do. you said that thing about it. Like it becomes propaganda if there's not, you know. <laughs> there's not empathy with it. Yeah. yeah. And humor. But here I am like. <laughs> <laughs> you got to read it. Too. I do though. I think yeah. in a way like and I guess that's art is if if we're really to engage with these complicated questions, uh-huh. it's it has to be more than news bites that we yeah. that we learn from. Yeah. And so I I do find myself like, hey, you need to read these things that are no, it totally is sort of our our sort of cultural moment right now. It's like the zeitgeist is is everything. It's weird. Like the book came out of I I totally because I was thinking about this. It took like seven years ago to write, but I did not intend to sort of like publish it in the midst of like Trump. the Trump era. Yeah. <laughs> we know, right? Yeah. We that was like, wow, it's bananas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, wow. Yeah. It's, it is interesting yeah, I, to I think about you in Ithaca, because I'm from Rochester, I'm from ah. Rochester, so I know Ithaca well, so it's like super oh, right worried on. and like lovely and Genesee you know, beer. ignore all the suicides and the gorges and stuff, but um, oh, and yeah. like, so now it is a longing for home. Like you were writing... I mean, about yeah. I mean, this this place of I don't know. It's pretty much as far away from Texas border lands as you can get. (laughs) Although, although what's weird is I remember I would go up to my wife loved to go to Montreal, and I remember we would like drive up through Plattsburgh, right there on the New York border. And I remember I feel like I got harassed on the Canadian border more than I got harassed on the Texas and Mexico border. That's funny because because I have this like old beat up pickup that's just like cracked windshield and stuff and then you know going into canada no problem coming back they're like they see a truck coming from texas and they're like what the fuck you know like like, like, what what get out of the car now you know kind of thing and like me and my wife have to get out she's german no yeah (laughs) so she's german i'm i'm american but i have mexican citizenship and so they're just like this is this is all messed up. Get out. Can't, <laughs> like, can't handle. A German and a, and a Mexican coming in from Canada with Texas license plate. So is it is it all hopeless? Um, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, there's always hope, you know. I'm I, I'm a firm believer that you know without hope, you know, like what are we working for? What do we? Why do we do anything, right? This and to this end, this is like a really interesting sort of. Um, I always think about this, like, what is the purpose of art? Stephen Fry used to say, you know, why does good wine matter? Why does, why does a burger matter? Uh, why does anything matter? You know, why does art matter? It's like, without these things, life isn't worth living. And so, like, on some fundamental level, I think there's, like, within the characters' lives, within the book, I think of, like, the things, those lists are, like, things that sort of give them hope. You know, water burger, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, the San Antonio Spurs. Um, H-E-B. H-E-B. <laughs> yes. Those yes. are really good. Those are yes. really good. I got some H-E-B shout outs in the book. Uh, what's up, H-E-B? And, it, you know, like, with those, those, those... Sponsored by H-E-B. Yeah. H-E-B should get it sponsored by You know, it's like Seriously. one of those things that it's like, I think of like, what are the hope is in the book? And it's actually in very tiny things. But even in my own life where I'm like, man, the world's burning. You, it's easy to become really easily discouraged. But then you come home and it's like, oh man, like something really simple like air conditioning. <laughs> it's just like, like I, sometimes like I, I came in from like the heat yesterday and it was so oppressive and I just remember just, you know, I sweat a lot anyway, but just sort of getting inside and just being like, God, this exists. This is, damn, this is awesome. It's, it's about, the, it really is about the little things. Yeah. It's about the little things in life. But I think about that in Mexico too, that these very, 
I mean, this is why, not, not to essentialize it or to essentialize an entire culture, but I remember when I was living in Mexico City, and that was the year of the Oitinapa, um, you know, sort of when those kids were disappeared. Mm. Um, it's, it was 2014. I remember just going to the soccer games, and they were cathartic. People, it was like going to church. People mm. were like, and I've been to Mexican soccer games before, but it was like on a completely other level. And these were Pumas games. And this time, you know, Pumas is, is sort of connected with uh, the National Autonomous University of Mexico, who is being, and they're very leftist, were being completely terrorized, spied on by uh, the Peña Nieto government, but also um, local police forces. And so they're always constantly being sort of like, you know, sort of infiltrated and hammered. Was, hammered. And so those games that semester were just like, oh, they were just so. <laughs> Um, cathartic. Like evil, yeah, <laughs> but finally, it's it's a really tough. Do you worry about sort of raising a child in a, in that's like their first context? Because like that's their that's their founding Terrifying. establishing context. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can't imagine being a parent right now. Yeah, like it's, it's just yeah. I the the current antidote is like keep reading. You yeah, just, just read voraciously and yeah. I mean, you know, you... keep keep knowing as much as you can about as many things as you can. Yeah. I no, I, I think that's great. I don't know if that's the answer, yeah. but it's what yeah. we have in it's front of us. It's definitely one of the answers. Yeah. A, yeah. Wow. I think about like what's good. Like Zizek, Slavoj Zizek has this sort of thing where he says, you know, sometimes, you know, the country, it needs to, it needs to sort of crash into the ground for us to realize that like politicians shouldn't be our role models. Mm-hmm. This mythology that we bought us, that America has really bought into, um, that's a, a dangerous mythology. And we keep going in that route. That's the stuff that begets sort of these proxy wars, these interventionist sort of tendencies, hyper-capitalist tendencies. And, I, and it, there's, some, there's some part of me where it's like, under Obama especially, where I was, yeah, I had that reaction the, the, with the day that Trump was inaugurated and be like, oh, this is not America. But then it, it totally was America. <laughs> it, was, it was the America that I had not acknowledged, mm, that yeah. I had completely... Underbelly of the, America. Yeah, but it's 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 one of those things. A different dark underbelly than than what Bang exposes, right? Like oh yeah, pesticides and there's so many dark underbellies. Well, (laughs) no, I mean there's that. I think I think you're right to see it in that context. That I mean, I talked to my son about immigration and and white privilege and racism, but I also yeah, there's just they're all of a piece. They're all these. There are all these narratives spinning around and mm-hmm. perspect- all these different perspectives and knowing, I think, knowing and reading as much about all of them as possible and acknowledging them is the key, right? So yeah. migrant workers and undocumented people on the borders and all of this, uh, you know. It's important. To, yeah, no, it's important it's to have supporters. those. Yeah, <laughs> but it's important to have those things in your radar. I think you think about like Puerto Rico and stuff. It's weird that that's not a bigger story that like the official government tally is 64 people. But then like something like 5,000, yeah, 4,600, 4,800. Yeah, yeah, have been killed. That discrepancy between sort of like, I mean, so talk about living in a post-truth era. But the fact that we can look beyond that is a kind of privilege or the fact that we can live beyond mm-hmm. like racism mm-hmm. it's weird I, th- I think in the obama era there was some part of us who thought we were i mean this is a it was the warning of the obama era among the left was that we were in this sort of post um racial era that of course yeah. a black man can become president but then you realize that racism too is in those really small spaces of like oh shit five thousand people died and nobody cared <laughs> that's like a that's like a really you know that's more people than died during um the trace is collapsing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And right. it's, it's like that's bananas. But I, I think I think about this. It was really it was really weird to sort of for Bang to come out. 
I mean, especially in the context of the Trump era, but also, you know, sort of after coming back from Mexico, that after Oitinapa, I had this entire, I was just had this really bad taste in my mouth about Mexican bureaucracy and the Mexican government and what the Mexican government stood for. Um, and it was, I remember having this moment where I came back really sick, actually. I had gotten like, like uh, some sort of like weird um, bacterial infection, like in my lungs or something. And I came back and I was just sort of, I, before I knew I was sick and while I was still in this fugue state, I remember sitting in a Walmart, getting my sort of oil changed or whatever, and just looking around and being like, whoa, everything here is so, because everything was in place. It was like a nine, nine in the morning, like yeah, after I got back into Mexico bright. City. It's really bright. It's really, and I remember just thinking like, uh, in this weird so sort of, <laughs> there's so much stuff and there's like excess. And I remember just thinking in my mind, just like this thing, like, oh, I'm back, like, wow. And then also sort of reflecting on this thing, like this, there's no way something like Oetinapa could happen here. I remember just thinking, like, God, I was so stupid. <laughs> like, I was so, I was so, and I remember just having this relief, like, oh, I'm here, I'm safe, there's, I, I don't have to worry about, you know. The shiny wall of Tide. And yeah. Everything was, like, it was, it was like a veneer of, of normalcy. Everything was in order. The oil was changing, like, 10 minutes or whatever. I was like, wow. Nine. And you're <laughs> yeah. No. And I was, but I remember just being like, oh my God, this is so depressing to think that like, yeah, we, we were told, we were all, I, I myself, okay. I, and I'm, a, you know, I think of myself as a pretty woke brown man, but was totally, was not in touch yeah. with, with that, that veneer is like, yeah, it's just a veneer. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's, you, we can all be wooed when we're not paying attention. Yeah. I wanted to ask about Arte Publica. Well, yeah. How, we, we love that press and want to hear how your journey was with them and how you found your way to them. They were great. You know, Arte Publico is um, the oldest and the largest uh, Latino press in the United States. Started by Nick Canelos in like the late 70s and is based at the University of Houston now. Um, but they're cool. You know, they publish people like, you know, a lot of people forget they published some of the first work from like Juan Felipe Herrera, who was our uh, U.S. poet laureate yeah, uh, yeah. recently before. I think now it's... Uh, Oh God, I'm I'm losing. Tracy K. Smith. Is it Tracy K. Smith? Yeah. Is it still? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Just check. <clears throat> uh, but also published works by like you know uh, you know you know I'm trying to think of like Sandra Cisneros' first book. Yeah, House that on Mango was Street the one that there. I didn't know. Oh was, really? Yeah. Um, House on Mango Street. House on yes, Mango Street. There's yeah. a it's a I'm trying to think of who else um, sort of really big you know John Ritchie, uh his later book he just has a book coming out right now called Pablo that was like his first novel that um, he just gave up but now it's without a publico so a lot of cool um, people. But it's been it's been good because you know when I when I was writing Bang I was like really conscious of like not sensationalizing I didn't want it to sort of be this sort of like like propaganda or be this become this piece about um, you know uh, essentializing the pain of an entire people or something and so it was good I I, I chose Arte Publico because they have this like one I mean they have incredible editors but they have this like they're really culturally sensitive to sort of you know they they honor the original vision they knew that even as dark as it was. That um, you know, there was they didn't they weren't worrying about sellability. They weren't worrying about um, numbers or any kind of metrics. They were just like, you have to create the best book that you can create. We're wow. gonna honor the original vision, and we're gonna try to get it as tight as we can. And so um, I had a few offers on it, but I ultimately went with them because they were um, they were just they they honored the original vision, I, and that was more that was worth more than anything. Yeah. You know, yeah. 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 So many writers, for so many writers, that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Get your money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, it's like, it, I, I have a lot of empathy for that because it's like writing is, is uh, the first years. I mean, it's like, 
when you're first starting your book, there's so many pitfalls. There's so many ways you can just fall through the cracks, you know, financially. It's, like I look at these writers who live in Brooklyn and stuff, and I'm just like, holy fuck. I know people who are like 80 grand in debt, 90 grand in debt for, for trying to make the dream work, you know? Yeah. yeah. And that's post-MFA stuff. And it's just kind of like, uh, it's... Also, true. I, I think too, like, like there's so many interesting things happening with indie presses. Like, I think Art of the Publico is kind of turning a page, but so so are you know. Uh, look at what's happening with Grey Wolf, Carmen Maria Machado. Or you look at Coffeehouse yeah, Press yeah. is putting out, you know, Daniel Saldana Perez. We'll be putting out Mark Haber. Yeah, I can't soon. wait. Yeah, yeah. Who well, Argonautica? Who's going to be the translator for Bang? Like, there's so many of these. Like, they're gaining market share. There's not that the writing's on the wall. Like, I, I think the big five will always be around. There'll always be some sort of. But I'm finding that indie presses are more globally conscious in a, in, a, in a way that like for a long time uh, and we talked about I talked about this in the panel at Writefest that New York is 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 their profit margins are so small they're constantly they're so hard invested in tokenism um, that it can be sometimes detrimental to I think literature at large you know and I think I think it's really one of these things where as a writer of color and you're especially when you're thinking about you you've worked so hard for this this product that you put out um you see, I'm in this capitalist mind frame. I call it a product. It's novel that you put out. And, and, and you back at Walmart. Yeah, back in the Walmart. Yeah. You know, you, you want it to be with the... Bang, on shelves now. Walmart. <laughs> Riching my Chinese workers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's, it's one of these... It's, I, I, think, I think you should be conscious of the way it's... Which is going to resonate and the way it's going to be sort of brought to production. Yeah. 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 I think, yeah. I think any presses can be a little more scrappy too in that way a little more um yeah like, like you guys I, yeah. I just read the um that poetry collection um what is the name again df oh, brown df brown yeah mm. no it's a beautiful book yeah. i was i'm so impressed with that book um so good yeah yeah it's sort of vietnam war vet i i took i listened to your podcast with uh lupe and jasmine <laughs> yeah and uh and uh Went to go read Paco's story. Oh my God! Yes. Holy crap! Yeah. Yeah. That first and, chapter is everything, man. Yeah. That first chapter is poetry, basically. It is. Yeah. It is. It is. And um, reading Brown's Brown's poetry yeah. next to Larry Heineman. Yeah, Larry Heineman. No, it's it's God. so interesting to see sort of some of that same jargon. That's sort of like like the same the same sort of the phraseology, like you know, like um, what what is like what is like a really hard Vietnamism that I'm thinking of, like you know, hell for high leather. Uh, although I don't know if that's necessarily um, Vietnamism, but they have these like little sort of like yeah, there idioms. was the same. It was the same language yeah. across both books. That it, it it really is like they came out with their own yeah. language. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Claymores and Pajamas? oh, them in fucking salad suits. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. I love that. Yeah. Well, yeah, and hate it too, right? Like it's so. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, but this. Oh, yeah. No, I mean I love the the metaphor. Yeah, but it reminds me so much of um, Larry Hyman's Paco story. Yeah, that book. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, you guys, you guys are killing it too. You guys are, you guys are putting some great work out in the world. Thanks. We hope to. Thank you. Hope to continue. But it feels good yeah. to be part of. Yeah, I don't think it's the writing on the wall, but a certain you know movement that gets to take more risks and yeah. and take on voices that otherwise might be falling through the cracks, and then also connecting them with people who are hungry for those voices. Yeah, right? like yeah. that's. The press's I mean, job is like finding the public that's out there who wants something other than what. Yeah, no, I mean, already out I there. talk to Mark about this a lot. Um, that you know, that you, so much of it is about creating your own scene. And the beautiful thing now is that, like, I mean, you look at like a lot of really interesting writing coming out of Latin America, like you know, Rodrigo Azbun, Samantha Schweblin, Daniel Salvani Paris, like, and, and Luis Eli. 
Yeah, Valeria Luiselli. Yeah. I, but I talked to Rodrigo. Uh, I knew him at Cornell. I talked to him a lot, and he was he sort of said something really interesting that resonated with me one time. Where he said, you know, when you are conscious that you're not going to sell a gazillion copies, like his first books or whatever, when he was printing them in Bolivia, he said, you can do anything. Yeah. And there's that sort of like, you sort of break the MFA rules. And you're sort of like, you're just playing on the page. But that makes for really interesting work. But I feel like right now, indie publishing is in this really sweet spot. Like everyone wants it to metastasize and for it to be like, compete with the big five. And I think that will happen. You know, I think you've already seen it with Grey Wolf and, and Coffee House. Not in terms of like, I mean, well, on, on a lot of metrics actually, in terms of volumes of sales and everything else. Sure, yeah. But there's a part of me that was like, I wanted to stay like, you know, like, not... Because it's like, I feel like it's at a sweet spot right now. There's so much interesting stuff happening. There's so much interesting writing. It's like, you know, there's like on the blog sphere, on the Twitter sphere, there's maybe like a handful of uh, really intense readers who, who can really appreciate it. But those are the, th those presses, you know, like are, are pushing the needle. Those yeah. are the things that are, yeah. that are, um, I think, making American literature relevant again in a way. Yeah, that... and then they're part of that ecosystem that involves independent bookstores like yeah. Brazos. And, you know, I mean, Barnes & Noble is, Seems like it's on its way out and Borders is gone, but I just did there are a bunch of really good ind independent bookstores in Boston. Yeah. And they're doing great. <laughs> so. No, yeah, it's like it's 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 fascinating. There was a there was a piece on NPR, um, a little segment that they were talking about how indie bookstores are sort of it's not like a dramatic buoy, but they're being buoyed right now because yeah. But I think a lot of it is like you look at like I look at like what uh, like Ben and, and Sarah and, and Mark and do at Brazzles and stuff. And it's just, they put so much work into it, man. Yeah. yeah. They, they don't just show up at work. That's not an accident. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. They're yeah. like, yeah. And doing great stuff. Heavily curated. What's yeah. the hand selling where they're like, this is the book you need. Well, that's what I love about Brazos is yeah. that, like, I feel like they're like, if they're like a doctor, like I would, I would trust them with medical <laughs> advice more. Like if they told, if they told me my spleen was about to rupture, I'd be like, oh yeah. You're probably right, Ben. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right, Ben. What do well, I do? Yeah. This is the book. Well, because like you go in there and they're just like here, and this is what you need, and then like mm -hmm. it's, I love that. It's like, oh, that's something that nobody can give you outside of an indie bookstore, right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe yeah. a really close yeah, friend. readers. I, I feel like I do that to people all the time, where they're like, yeah, I just feel like this kind of book that I'm like, oh my God, I have it. I know it. I wanted to ask you about Jess and I've been out of university for a while now. I want to know what the atmosphere is like among your students. You know, what do you, yeah. what, what are they like? I talked about my 10 year old growing up in this context. What does it feel like to be in the front of a classroom right now with your students? For me, the novel came out of, Really, oh, really? In, in a lot of ways, that's, there's so much truth in what you just said. Because like, they're coming into their intellectual own right I now. I really, I genuinely, I know it's like, I genuinely feel this, man. This is like, what people see when you're like a professor is that you're just a teacher. But you're also like a priest and a psychologist mm -hmm. and a parent and all of these things rolled into one. You also have to yeah. keep writing. Uh, you have to oh, be a yeah. colleague. Um, but for me, you know, something, Robin Davidson, uh former poet laureate of, of Houston said something to me really interesting one time where she says, if you're teaching right, um, if you're doing it the right way, if you're teaching well, uh, it's going to be a dangerous job. Mm. And I always thought about that, like, wow. And she's talking about like education and sort of, you know, but the, the business of learning uh, by nature, you're going to make some people uncomfortable because you're breaking what their worldview is essentially. Mm. Um, and, you know, especially in the sort of like post-truth era, we're on sort of the front line of what is truth. We have facts. 
Even if something is really simple as like, you know, this ambient is, doesn't call race. <laughs> that that's a that's that's a controversial thing. And it's weird though, right? Right? It's a weird that's like that's like a that's like a that's like a one of these moments where you're like, wow, we have drifted far in post-truth land. And so it's interesting, it's like we're still in Texas, right? And so uh, my students at UHD are actually really they're really sharp and they're really smart. It's not uncommon uh, to sort of have that resistance, though, from from uh, among anyone who's in, in, you know, even even students who are relatively woke, who are working through. And I, but I think that's what college is about. Well, essentially, this is like the sort of the, the the fallout of you know the Enlightenment: facts, truth, critical thinking. These this is these are like really the bedrock of I would argue a democracy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I try not to think about that too much because you can sort of like get in your head about what am I doing in front of the classroom? You know, it's like, you'd be like Captain My Captain or some shit. <laughs> but like, you know, it's like, I, I was like, I just can't get through the lesson plan and it's going to be fine. Yeah. But when you're dealing with story, right? And story is a little bit more mushy because what is story, right? And I always, to make it easy on my students, I always crystallize it into this Henry Jamesian definition of a story, which is like, you know, story is not, it can't be story in the vulgar sense of the word. It has to be like, meaning it can't be an anecdote. It has to be story in the true sense, meaning it has to be about a shift of character from the beginning to the end. But wow. even within that, you know, and you can sort of empiricize in that way, there's so much um, room for controversy or yeah. um, discomfort um, because, you know, how, how a character changes and the way a character operates within the story can sometimes um, mean radical things about humanity. And I think that that's, uh, that's been an interesting thing to teach in the context of like a post-truth era. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And for better or for worse, I think the way it's been sort of like people have been trying to sort of like use it as like a means to an end. They think it's just to get a job. And I think that's actually it's it's really it's 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 really weird to talk about because it's like it makes administrators unhappy. It makes deans unhappy. It makes, you know, but like that notion, like it makes administrators unhappy to hear kids say that. It's like, no, well, kind or, of. Yeah, yeah kind. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think for what it's worth, especially at UHD, we have an incredible dean of uh, College of Humanities and Social Sciences. We have an incredible president. We have, we have, we have good infrastructure there. I, you know, I'm there for a reason. Mm-hmm. I, and it's, it's, a good, it's a good place. It feels good. But I keep thinking about this thing that Cristina Rivera Garza wrote about in this, in this Revista Unam, which is um, this, this beautiful essay on sort of what higher ed does and this sort of like, what is the purpose of higher ed being in the vanguard, especially like a Hispanic serving institution. Yeah, I read that and, this morning. So oh my God, good. it is so good, yeah. <sighs> Yeah, that is, uh, it's, 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 it's a really incredible vision. But she's saying, especially at a Hispanic survey institution, we have to bring it back to this idea that if you take, it's almost like that, it's really simple. You know, you take care of those small things and those big things will take care of themselves. That like, if you take care, if you, if you teach students to think critically, if you teach students to work against what post-truth is, which essentially sort of is like, um, you know, you can't be entitled to your own facts. What you have there is like, you know, that's what job seekers or jobs want. They want someone who knows who's learned how to learn. Yeah. Right. It's not just about the, it's not just about the degree. It's not just about the sort of the, the degree. Daniel, I can't end. measure that with a standardized test. I know, man. man. <laughs> so, it's wrong it's so frustrating, but I'm having to communicate with this. But you know, so yeah, yeah. Christina Vedegars is always talking about like, you know, it, you, we have to, um, among other things, that essay is really elaborate, but you know, we have to convey the value of critical thinking. Yeah. 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 Hey, we haven't asked um, Daniel what he's working on before we. I just feel oh, like yeah. we asked that thing? before yeah, we, we get it. into the, the what else. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm working on this book. It's tentatively titled Bengal City Airlines, but it's about a, a Syrian pilot who burns out of uh, the war there, the contemporary war there, and finds refuge in Mexico where his 
his mother was a citizen, so she has he has like citizenship by proxy, but he hasn't been there since he was like a kid. And so he's living in this Mexican fabric in Mexico City, and he's going crazy because he lost his entire family. So he's working through what it means to have been a father and to have lost kids. He has to sort of adopt this kid. And so it's, it's him working his way through sort of really just fractals of, of fatherhood. You know, he had lost a kid, but now he's gained a kid. And is he still a father? Is he not a father? Um, but he's a pilot and he's, he's, he's the entire story. They're working on this airplane that they found that sort of they're building it. And that's what it's about. So you promised your wife you weren't going to do another drug war novel, only to do <laughs> a Syrian pilot novel. Mexican. And another family. plane yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, but it's like, you know, the thing is like the trauma. It's not another drug war novel, huh? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's about a pilot. No, but it's like this. Those, those. Yeah, it's, 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 it's much happier. But yeah. It's much happier. It's much happier. It's, it, well, in some ways it is happier because it's, it's, it's about, you know, yeah, it's, it's a little fun. bit more whimsical and it's a little bit, what is fatherhood? What is fatherhood? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, yeah I'm excited about it. for if and when you decide to have your own. Yeah. yeah, and then I'll just chuck it and be like, this is not fatherhood. <laughs> I'll just like, this is my idealized version of fatherhood going away. Yeah. What I didn't know. Books for what ails ya. Cool. All right. Number one, the old friend, a book you read every year, whether you whether you need to or not. Ooh, I would probably say Paco's story, Larry Hyman's Paco's story. I, I I don't do that on in, on purpose, but I just find myself reading it every year, um, just because it's I'm always there's always something to learn from it. There's always some sort of like like that first chapter, man. It's just like yeah. Once holy you start shit. it, you can't. I mean, I yeah. sat and read yeah. hundred pages just. Even yeah. though the kids were like, I need some cereal, mom. Like, <laughs> Shut the hell up. No, it's a Bildungsroman, so it's like, it's, it's, but there's, it's just so crafty. I love it. The Green Eyed Monster book, the one you wish you'd written. You know, I, I'm getting into Sour Grapes, I think it's called by Jenny, Jenny Zhang. Um, uh-huh. She is just so smart. I mean, it's just like on another level. I think that's. I haven't read it, but I've read a lot oh about it. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. No, she gives this really sort of interesting sort of. Because she you knows she's she's first gen, but she's like talking about uh-huh. like you know it's it's not an immigrant story. She's she's sort of really decentering what first gen novels can do. But it's like she she gives all these like sort of beautiful. She had this piece in the Atlantic that was talking about sort of Roberto Bolaño and sort of the the things that she learned from him. But I feel like she's thinking at art on a really high level that I'm just like. But you, you see it manifest in that book, and I'm just like, wow, mm-hmm. yeah, I wish I would have written that. Yeah. Uh, your on writing Bible. On writing short stories by. Um, Oh my God! What is that guy's name? Uh, Tom Bailey. Oh, Tom Bailey. That's what it was. Yeah, on writing short stories by Tom Bailey. Thirty-four eighty-nine at Walmart yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> that was so good. But he sort of—it's a really simple, just bonehead. What is fiction? And I—I I feel like that is—is—it's—it's it's weird because I teach it, but it's also sort of like it's—it's kind of like my little Bible because every time I'm thinking about what short story, like there's this great essay by Francine Prose in there where she talks about like what is story and she's like it's nothing (laughs) (laughs) yeah that takes that takes the edge off a little bit cool so when I get in my head 
about craft or there's always Francine Pros to be like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's, it's nothing. Fine. It's whatever. <laughs> yeah. Okay, your imposition of guilt book. The one you leave out that you know you should read, but for whatever reason you haven't gotten to read yet and feel really guilty about. Oh man. You know, um there are there are a few. Uh, <laughs> but like this is this is terrible. Like most things by Alberto Luis Orrea, like his fiction, I've read The Devil's Highway, but I have to really, I, I, I haven't gotten to any of his, his fiction, mm-hmm. and I'm really embarrassed by that. I'm like, God, because I, because I, yeah, it's, but he's Alberto uh, Luis Orrea stuff, man. It's like, but he's a great, mm-hmm. yeah. The classic that you were forced to read in high school or college that didn't resonate with you at all. You know, what didn't resonate with me at the time but I'm sort of going back to it now is just like, like Kafka. Like I was like, I remember just reading this when I was like 16, 17, being like, ah, this is, you know, like get Gregor and it's like, okay, whatever, metamorphosis. But just like, <laughs> I remember just thinking like, this is so, so, and I think I was too in my head. Like, you know, this was like, they just put out the 10th year anniversary of like the Nirvana, that lost album where he came out with a song. And so I was still in this weird like grunge phase, but I was like way out. It was like every Mexican kid where I caught onto things 10 years too late. And so I was like wearing flannel in Austin and like, I like that you played Kurt Cobain. <laughs> but, so, All his but just sort of, I was like too, I took yeah. myself too seriously and like yeah. absurdism was not, had like no appeal to me. And I was like, ah, what is this? But now I, I get older. Actually, it was, it's my gateway to it was just sort of through reading Mark a lot and sort of deathbed confessions yeah, and, yeah. Beard. Uh-huh, uh-huh. and just being like, this is so funny. It's... And it's like, in, in, in a way that it's like, uh, like a distillation of Mark <laughs> on, the, on the page. Awesome. You're like, this is great. But it's like, or deathbed conversions, I should say. That, that's, that, that's the book. But it was sort of my gateway into sort of like a lot of absurdism. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I, I it, yeah, but Kafka, a lot of, you know, yeah, metamorphosis. That's funny because I, like, you have such a Kafka-esque moment in Bang when Ophiela is, is Facebook friending her sons to try to find them <laughs> they don't have any access to technology. I love that. Yeah, it's one of those things where, it, well, it, this is a sort of part of the tragedy of the book, too, is that, like, they do, but they're just in, like, the San Miguel in the book is just so burnt out that there's no internet right. cafe. So there's, like, they, right. if they, can, they know how to use it. They're just like, fuck, where is this? Right, infrastructure. Right. It's yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Not, yeah. it's almost like being in a dream where you can't move your limbs appropriately. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. just on the edge. Yeah. Like oh my god. Yeah. It's... So close to being, and then the frustration that you feel. Yeah. A book that changed your life. Autobiography of Malcolm X mm. by Alex Haley. I forgot. I always because it's weird because it's like an autobiography. No, but that that book was like holy fuck. This is like um, I mean, it's talking about it like the first woke book that I read. How old up until were you? I was like, man, it's like seventeen Dang. or sixteen. I remember just being in. Li- I used to get in a lot of trouble in high school. And I remember like my last semester, they were just like, you're gonna be a library aide, and you're just gonna hang out here, and you're gonna help the librarian, and like. Stop yes. Yeah. <laughs> so like, that's I remember, not even punishment. That's like the best punishment. It was. Ever. Oh my god. Sue and I were talking about like we if there there were things that we would do if we were in prison and it would be like <laughs> we would be so much smarter. Uh, yeah, that book. That book opened. It, it was like a like a whole other side of the world opened up to me. You know. Mm-hmm. I yeah. love it. Yeah. Uh, your Gideon Bible book. Which book would you? leave in the hotel room nightstands if you own a hotel room. You know, it's like, it's like a guilty favorite, but I think like Frank McCourt's uh, Angela's Ashes is so... Ooh, that's a great one. Yeah, yeah, so dark and so funny. 
that it's yeah. just like, oh my god, like that. I feel like that's like one of the most. It's weird because it's, it's at once it's been sort of canonized. It's got this movie, but then I feel like it sort of got co-opted by these like, you know, like the people who are like really in Ireland, and I'm like. Hey, you into Ireland a little too much, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, just, it was like, it was like it's, 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 but like that book is so good. It's so great. Yeah, like, but it's, it's one of those things that I'm like, everyone should read it. Daniel, thanks so for being on the show. Thank you for having me. This was great. Yeah, so good Pad to meet you too. Me I don't know. How do we say that? Cast me. Pod, pod I don't know. Me. Yeah, <laughs> I like pod me. Pot, pot shake. Pot, pot shake, shake your hand. Pot shake. Okay, that's good. Yeah. That just sounds like someone did a Keurig and just went like that. And just like, <laughs> just like has a milkshake that's that. You just put it like, a, yeah. Oh, yeah. A pot shake. You heard it here first. Daniel's going to TM them. Yeah. Pot shakes. Awesome. We're going to be able to get those at Whataburger like next season. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. We, it. It starts and it ends with Whataburger. I love that. Exactly. The beginning and the end. Pot shakes. Sponsored by Waterburger. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I tweeted out so many things to Waterburger about my book, and man, they never responded at all. What are they doing over I, there? I they think are missing I, Jim. They sort of have this sort of like, you know, salt of the earth Texas sort of brand, and like when you see like a Mexican drugstore, they're like, hey, it's, not, it's, not, it's not our brand. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but we appreciate it. But I'm like, you got the spicy ketchup. <laughs> you have the fucking throw me a fucking bone there's like but I have the Whataburger Jr. in there I don't know it's all in there it's all in there but they 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 didn't tweet it sons of bitches (laughs) Fing Shakespeare is brought to you by the letters F U C and nope just kidding it's brought to you on the backs of the harried unpaid and not quite starving artists that make up Bloomsday Literary discover books that matter Also, the good people at Houston Creative Space. Photography, video, and fine art. Find all things creative at Houston Creative Space. Follow us on the Twitter and the Insta at Bloomsday Lit. Show us some love on iTunes. Subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Please. And by Audible. Stop being a dick in traffic. I'm looking at you, Houston. Listen to us, effing Shakespeare, and then when you're done with us, listen to an audiobook from Audible. A title we recommend is Eddie Izzard's new book, Believe Me, a memoir of love, death, and jazz chickens. Effing Shakespeare listeners get a free title with a new trial membership. Go to audibletrial.com slash Shakespeare and get started today.